welcome to the listen and think podcast in this episode i'm sharing the audio of an event i hosted with the lse venture capital society i'm joined by nicole quinn she's a partner at lightspeed venture partners which is one of the largest venture capital firms in the world we discussed the startup industry in general and the consumer technology space in particular i hope you find this conversation as useful as i did so now with that let's get started so thank you everyone for joining us uh, to this event hosted by the lse venture capital society i'm delighted to welcome nicole quint to this event she's a partner at lightspeed venture partners which is one of the 10 biggest vcs in silicon valley before joining lightspeed she worked in equity research at morgan stanley we'll spend the first half of this event discussing some of her insights into the consumer technology space we'll then move on to q and a from the audience so and we'll try to get through as many as we can thank you so much for joining us of course my pleasure thank you so much for having me i know we only have half an hour today but um let's definitely get through lots of uh, q and a and i'm excited for your questions so before we move on to your work at lightspeed could you tell us a little bit about the transition from public market equity research to early and growth stage venture capital what was that like yeah sure um so you know i think it's important to say that for me entrepreneurship has always been in my blood and uh, something i've been very passionate about was helping my father build online pharmacies in the 1990s um and you're right i then spent nearly a decade at morgan stanley and that was public equities um but what was interesting is um we'd often meet these companies a couple of years before they would ipo and really work with them on you know the growth side of the business thinking about the storytelling both for growth investors and then the public markets um and i loved that work but i had also been angel investing for that decade and um i was so much more passionate about angel investing um i just loved helping companies with their early vision and the strategy and thinking about hiring um and so i thought how can i do this full time uh because i found myself rushing out of the market uh, you know leaving the trading floor at 4 or 5 o'clock whenever the market shut and um going over to do angel investing so that was where my passion was so i actually came back to england and i worked at nutmeg uh, which is a fintech startup um between their series a and series b and it was exciting to see how quickly they were moving and help them with their fundraising um we raised a series b from balderton and troders um and i loved that world so um i sort of tried to take my knowledge from both public and early stage investing to business school i went out to stanford started a startup pitched it to lightspeed um and i would also say like that and that's how i met them for the two years i was at gsb i also tried to really focus on some of that angel investing as well and so i was angel investing in you know classmates and friends and advising companies um and so sometimes i say the best way to get into vc is by start being a vc before you are one and what does that look like you know that looks like angel investing advising companies um helping friends where you can um speaking at conferences blogging tweeting all the sort of things that vcs do generally um and that uh that set me on this path i believe uh chris saka lower case also started by just consulting with startups and then got into venture capital so i wanted to talk about some of the investments that lightspeed has made 
So Lightspeed is really big on influencer-led startups. So Katy Perry's House Laboratories, Jessica Alba's Honest Company. And I was wondering what the thesis behind your interest in this area is. Is this just a symptom of higher customer acquisition costs in social media? Or is there a deeper competitive edge that an influencer start, a founder brings? I would say it's both. Um, firstly, it is far cheaper and more efficient to turn a fan into a customer than it is to acquire a brand new customer. Um, and so if you're working with somebody like Lady Gaga, then if she has 70 million followers and she just sends out one tweet, she's going to convert a big percentage of those. And you don't have to then pay the exorbitant prices to Facebook and be so reliant on them. Um, every company I work with is trying to reduce reliance on Facebook. Um, so that is something that um, is really beneficial through working with influencers and celebrities. Then I'd say um, it's all about authenticity with the celebrities. And so there really is um, an advantage through working with the celebrities that goes far beyond just marketing um, because people know that celebrity or influencer and they've spent like 10, 20 years knowing what they stand for. And so that means that they instantly know what this company stands for. They know what this brand is. Um, and so David Dubrick in the US has like basically a hundred million followers across his social platforms. And when he and a friend of mine, Dan Liss, um, actually from business school, started um, Dispo, um, it just blew up. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's in the UK yet, but you guys should definitely check this out. It's essentially a digital version of a um, disposable camera. Um, we're not investors, but um, it's, which actually makes it more relevant, me recommending it. I means I actually genuinely just think that it's a cool consumer product that you guys should try. Um, but um, it's trying to say, hey, listen, don't take photos and then go through your photos and try and perfect them. Like live in the now. Take a photo as if it's a disposable camera and then it gets developed and, you know, sent to you digitally on your phone the next day. Um, so it's trying to encourage people to live in the moment. Um, you know, I like that. And that's a great celebrity use case. Um, and they've really enhanced the product of the business. So another investment that Lightspeed has made in the influencer space which is my favorite investment in the Lightspeed portfolio is Cameo. So uh, Cameo isn't influencer-led, but it deals in that ecosystem. But I was wondering how you go about estimating a market size for a company that's creating its own category. I believe your partner, Jeremy Liu, calls these brave new world companies. That there was no market here before. So how did you go about estimating a market size and knowing that it's a big enough market to invest in. So I believe that most of, um, well, yeah, probably the majority of the most valuable consumer companies today are ones that did not have a market before or do not have a significant market. So if you think about Amazon, right, they were just selling books online. Books online was a tiny little market. Um, when they got started, barely was a market there. Um, and if you think about eBay, they were selling Beanie Babies through an auction online. <laughs> it's not a big market for that. You think about Airbnb, right? Like the size of the like sleeping on the people's sofa market and paying for that, <laughs> not a big market. Same thing with Uber, right? Uber was like a limousine service in San Francisco. 
um, there was a market, but it was small. Um, but they democratized that, um, allowed it to be you know, a private driver for everyone. Um, and so that's what we get excited about when we're looking at Cameo or any um, consumer company, really. Um, we strongly believe they can either create a market or grow a market. Um, and you think about Cameo and the way that we... I guess, you know, if you look at our investment memo, we looked at market sizes, right? We looked at like, influencers, we looked at, um, you know, sort of celebrity markets overall. But yeah, it was very difficult to think about um, sizing up that and believing that, you know, it's now a billion dollar business and we believe it'll be a $10 billion business. Uh, that was probably the size of the market um, back then. Um, but we have a big, a strong belief that we invest where there's a technology overlay on an existing consumer behavior. And so with Snapchat, people used to send, you know, cheeky photos to one another and then really wish that they would be deleted and technology overlay for that. Um, and Cameo, there was the autograph, right? And it's much cooler to have a video shout out as like the digital version of an autograph. Um, and so even if you think about the autograph, there was a decent sized market for that. So sometimes we try to look at like those analog markets, um, but they certainly grow it. And I'd have to think that building a market is much harder than working in an existing market. So the team becomes even more important. So what excited you about the team at Cameo and what do you look for in a team in general? Stephen from Cameo says that he likes this idea of um, if you have three co-founders, one's the hustler, one's the hippie, and one's the hacker. Um, and that's exactly what we had at Cameo. So the hacker had worked at Microsoft. He was actually an influencer himself, but like, you know, he was a coder. He's a great CTO and head of product as well. Um, the hustler was our, you know, now sort of, you know, head of sales, Martin. He was like an NFL agent. He knows everybody, lives in LA. And, you know, that um, is a perfect example of the hustler. Um, and then the CEO, Stephen, now he is a force of nature. He calls himself the hippie in that relationship because um, he's sort of everywhere and uh, talking to everyone and thinking about the bigger vision. Um, but I would say he's so much more than that. Like Steven, even at this early stage, I like I look at him and I'm like, you could be a public market CEO. Like you are exceptional. You focus on these deep insights and you really have this belief of like the market is gonna look like this in the future and I'm gonna make it possible. And he has this sheer determination and stubbornness around, I'm gonna make it like that. Um, so those are some of the things that we look for in founding teams. One other investment that was really interesting to me was Calm, where you invested in the growth stage. And uh, it's the first mental health or mindfulness unicorn. But I remember reading about fitness apps. They had a major problem with retention because it takes a lot of effort to engage with it and work out every day. Yeah. So ha has the mindfulness space faced a similar problem? So... The way I like to think about it is Calm's act one was mindfulness meditation and had an okay retention. You know, like a good retention because it was like, I'd say that comps had okay, Calm was good um, because it was a great product. But still meditating is like a vitamin. 
you know you should take your vitamins, you know they're good for you, but you often forget and you don't necessarily do it every day. Then act two for Calm came when they introduced the sleep product. Now, if you can't go to sleep, it is like a painkiller. You need it straight away. And you know, you reach for it and you take it instantly. And so as a result, their attention dramatically increased. The engagement in terms of like time in app per day went up threefold by adding these sleep stories. And that was really got, what got us very excited about the product because it was no longer this nice to have, it was this need to have. Um, and the third act for Calm, you know, is emerging now. Um, and we were thinking maybe it could be the music, maybe it could be um, Calm Body um, as, you know, some of their fitness videos. And I think especially the music is really resonating. But Calm has like an act three, which is emerging now, which is really around the medical side. Um, and that is what is definitely encouraging companies to pay for the product. And they have a very fast growing B2B side of the business now as well. Um, and um, yeah, watch this space. That's the exciting area for Calm. Yeah, I read in your blog that you think the lines between B2B and B2C are blurring. So could you explain that a little further? What, what does that look like? Do you remember the name of the blog post that you read that said that? Was it the super app one? It was the new year, the five new trends, I think, for 2020. Oh, yes. Every year, by the way, everyone and I do, a, um, here are my predictions for the year ahead. Yeah. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're very wrong. I think in 2020, I said, talked about the rise of IRL in real life. That did not happen. Um, and um, I'm glad that we did not make uh, investments in that space. Uh, a lot of people were investing in a lot of these sort of like in-person AR and VR experiences. Um, but... Um, I would say the lines between B2B and B2C are blurring because um, a lot of these consumer products, they start off as like a cool consumer brand, you know, Calm's a great example, or Cameo actually. Um, and they see these really fast growth uh, and adoption curves. And then what happens is they realize, hey, actually we can send this uh, product and it won't cannibalize our existing users, but we can sell it, um, us, sorry, sell it to um, corporates. Um, and so it's definitely blurring on that side of things. It's also blurring a lot around like the health area. And so some of these health companies will start as B2C and then they realize that consumers don't actually have the willingness to pay and they'll move into selling it to the companies because the corporates now, you know, especially now, are not even paying these office costs. And so they have much bigger budgets to spend on um, you know, wellness programs for their employees. And so insurance companies or particularly corporates are paying for products that consumers love and they want, they just don't have as high a willingness to pay for it. Right. So before I open, up, open it up to Q&A, the biggest change that Lightspeed is anticipating is a platform shift from mobile to voice. So could you tell us a little bit about what voice as a platform would look like and why it stands out as opposed to other platforms? I remember wearable technology was supposed to be the next platform and to a, le le to a lesser extent, it, it was there, the buzz was there with VR as well. So why do you think voice stands out as the next new platform? So I had a wearable company and that was one that I originally pitched to Lightspeed. So I definitely hear you on that space being, um 
one that was very exciting, um, but then Apple Watch came in and sort of like killed all those companies um, and it never quite got there. Audio to me is much more exciting because we're already seeing the dogs eat the dog food. And so you look at Clubhouse, people love Clubhouse. Um, and that's just purely audio, right? It's on your phone, but there's key reasons why audio as a platform is really emerging now. And it's because we are always on. So we have all these Alexa and Echo and you know Google and Amazon, uh, sorry, uh, Apple home products around our house where in every room we can basically just talk to them and always be on from an audio perspective. Um, we always have AirPods in our ears um, and we're like, you know, walking around the streets um, and we constantly are attached to audio. Um, so that to me is like, I guess like two of the reasons why audio makes a ton of sense. Plus there's a lot of Zoom fatigue. I'm on these calls, like, I don't know about you guys, but like I'm on for like 12 hours a day on Zoom. Um, my husband and I love just to be able to go on the clubhouse in the evening and be like, great, we're in our pajamas. Last night we were listening to Bill Gates. He was probably sitting there in his pajamas too, right? He was like, great, I'm not on video. I'm just going to sit in an armchair in my pajamas late at night and I'm just going to talk to like <laughs> tens of thousands of people on clubhouse. Um, it's just so much lower friction. Um, so I really like audio as a platform. But one of the key concerns with audio or voice as a platform has been the so-called discoverability problem that how do you discover new content or new features without having a screen to look at so even with clubhouse you do have a screen to look at you don't with alexa so how do you imagine the industry overcoming this hurdle especially small startups that don't have a lot of data to predict what you want to listen to next or what you want to watch next I've talked about this on, um, you know, in blogs and on panels before. You are right. That is the number one issue with audio. Um, it needs to be solved. It has not been solved yet. Um, discoverability was the main issue with apps um, before you had the app store. And so what we need is an app store for audio to solve the discoverability issue, um, you know, in whatever that looks like for audio. Um, I don't have the answer, um, but that's why it's exciting being a VC because you get to meet these incredible founders every day who do have the answers and you get to you know, back them and partner with them, you know, be their capital provider for life and invest in generational change companies. So that's why this job is so exciting. All right, uh, let's open it up for your questions now. So if you have a question, just raise your hand in the Zoom chat and Alessandro will call out your name. By the way, Chris has a question. Do you want me to read out this question? Uh, I think there's also two, two ways. Either you can raise your hand or... Yeah, exactly. Sure. Keith has a question. So why don't we go to Keith and then we'll go to Chris on the written question. Hey, great. Thanks. Thanks so much. So I was wondering um, if you think that these younger companies today are, are genuinely more um, social responsibility focused than their older and larger predecessors in consumer apps? Definitely. Um, I feel like it's table stakes now. You know, we invested in Rothy's and um, Rothy's is a shoe company in the US um, coming to Europe very soon. Um, and their flat shoes made entirely of plastic recycle bottles. Um, I mean, they sell hundreds of millions of dollars a year. It's an incredibly successful company. But if you hear people talking about it, they're like, 
oh, they're made of recycled bottles. It's environmentally friendly. This is such a great sustainable company. Like that really drives the word of mouth. It also drives the loyalty and the higher repeat rates in this business. And so it's something that resonates with all generations, but especially Gen Z. Gen Z right now is far more about not a cool brand, but a brand, like I feel like millennials wanted a cool brand. Gen Z really want like a brand that, speaks to them right and like has similar values to them um i feel like you guys are probably gen z so i would actually love to hear from you about what you know uh, is important to you in some of these brands but like all the research we've done really shows that it's table stakes and the companies need to have strong strong values around sustainability um and other areas can i follow up that really quickly yeah um, yeah, I just would like to ask how, what you think made that, uh, drove that change. Was that through an educational change? Was it through just the, the crises that we're facing and greater exposure to those via internet? Or how do you think that this generation differs from the older ones? So I think, um, can I ask you, how old are you guys on average on the call? Roughly. I'm 21. Okay, great. So you guys were born like, around the year 2000. And so it was like, by that time, we already were in like a technology world, right? So like you were born into this world where there were these technological devices, whether that be, you know, you know, phones or computers, like whatever it was, like you kind of grew up around that. And so my view is like, when you grow up amongst that, you have to think to yourself, like what matters? Like what really matters because everybody's on their phones the whole time and the world is moving so fast around me. Um, and you've got to kind of reassess things and think about your values. Um, so that's one thing. The second is, um, yes, there was like the global financial crisis of like 2008, 2009, but like otherwise, like for the last 20 years, we've been in really good times. Um, and so when things are like, you know, constantly going up, you're thinking to yourself, well, let me think about what's important to me. Um, and hey, you know, there's all this like value creation happening, all these incredible companies starting, like I wanna start a company. Um, you have the role models to look to and you're like, hey, if Mark Zuckerberg can do it when he's 21, I can do it too. Um, and I want to create a company. And if I'm creating a company, what do I want that company to stand for? What would the culture be? What would the values be? Um, you know, so many, I think like 80% of young people want to start a business. Um, and so I think it's some of those things. Do you have any other views around why you think that might be? I mean, I mean, yeah, I think, I, I think I largely agree with you that the kind of growth is good mentality that, you know, there's genuinely like a, a less self-interestedness because people can have, people can spare, people can afford to be concerned with these larger issues. Um, and so I think that's probably driving it. I, I agree. I, I do wonder if people are using the internet more and technology more to inform their decisions though as well that perhaps older generations are not. Yep, I hear you. I also realized we have four minutes and I'm gonna try and do a minute per question because I see there's three questions. So I'm gonna quickly go to Chris. Okay. You had a question Chris. about what the future of Lunch Club would look like, especially with competitors like Clubhouse entering. Exactly. So Clubhouse is a really terrific product. Um, the business is on fire right now, um, especially like last month and this month, um, growing like 50% month on month again. Um, and so 
you guys should check it out. It's lunchclub.io. We just launched an app as well. Um, the really special thing about this company is the algorithm. And so it matches you with people who you would not otherwise meet. You could go to a conference of like 300 people in a room and you'd never meet as someone as relevant as Lunch Club. Um, Clubhouse is very different, right? So like Andreessen actually invested in both Lunch Club and um, Clubhouse. Um, they're an observer um, on the board of Lunch Club with us. And I would say that um, the two can both exist. Um, and in fact, you know, people are going to these conferences and these digital conferences and then they're partnering with Lunch Club so the Lunch Club can facilitate the networking afterwards. So you can meet such relevant people to either be friends with or for professional reasons or dating. Um, so that's an exciting one. Now, Hi, Nicole. Um, do you guys still think that D2C um, can give rise to new con consumer companies? Um, I'm especially interested in food and beverage. Do you think there is anything interesting moving in that um, space? I do. We're an investor in Daily Harvest and also Hungry Root. Um, they're both D2C food companies. Um, so I think that there's exciting companies in that space. Um, but I think that you really need to focus on like what's unique, right? Because there's so many companies in that space. Um, so you have to figure out like what's unique to you. Um, and there's a company I spoke to this morning, actually, which you might invest in confidentially. Um, and they're doing something really unique in the food space. Um, and as a result, their customer acquisition cost is pretty much zero because everybody's talking about it. And um, so I would focus you to think about, you know, where the gap in the market is and what you would build that is really unique. Okay, one minute for the last question, which is we have a lot of portfolio companies, data science, digital security, music collabs. Uh, what do you think of the biggest mistakes that founders make which result in a lack of VC investment? Uh, and what about likes these companies? sold their value proposition to you okay so um i mean resulting in a lack of vc investment there's a lot of things um there's a lot of i guess mistakes but um listen like i take 10 founder meetings a day that's 50 a week that's 2500 a year and i invest in two so it's literally a one in a thousand um so i would say it's not so much mistakes that founders make but it's um more not doing the things that make you stand out to be the one in a thousand. Um, I guess like if I had to point to some mistakes, it would be not being honest about your numbers. Um, I have seen that and it always gets found out and it doesn't end well. Um, and so it's so much better to be upfront, right? It's like then you're going to be a partner for the next 10 years. And so you always want to be uh, upfront and honest about everything. Um, and then it's like a marriage that you're going into. Um, and, you know, be honest around like sharing what's, what the risks are associated with the business. It just shows the VC that you understand your business so deeply when you're saying, hey, this is what's exciting about it. These are also the risks and this is how we plan to mitigate it. Um, but this has been wonderful. Thank you so much um, for all taking the time and listening today. <laughs>